Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of our Climate Breakdown podcast, your home for in-depth discussion and debate on the state of the climate. Climate Breakdown is offered to you by the Climate Expertise Center at the VU Amsterdam. My name is Mathieu Blondeel, I'm your host, and today we are once again recording in the studio of our very own campus radio. Twenty twenty three was a year of climate extremes. In the summer, large parts of Europe and Northern America had to deal with scorching heat waves and massive wildfires. Canada, for example, witnessed its worst wildfire season in recorded history. Autumn storms also caused flooding in Mexico, Hong Kong, and Europe, while flash floods killed thousands in Libya. Finally, droughts in southern America saw lake and river water levels fall dramatically, including in the Amazon rainforest. These kinds of extreme weather events will become more common and more severe as the Earth further warms. And that's why we're kicking off our Climate Breakdown series with an episode on the state of the global climate. Where are we now? What can we expect in the near to midterm future? And perhaps what we can do to limit warming within the objectives of the Paris Agreement. I'm very honored to be kicking off our series with Professor Bart van den Hurk. Amongst many other things, Bart is a professor here at the VU Amsterdam, where he studies the interaction between climate and the socio-ecological system. Currently, he's also the scientific director at the Independent Knowledge Institute Deltares in Delft in the Netherlands. And prior to that, he spent 20 plus years at the Dutch Meteorological Institute, working on climate change scenarios and many more issues. These are, of course, already fantastic credentials, but perhaps the main reason why we have him on the show today is that he was also the lead author of the IPCC sixth assessment report, so basically lead author of the Climate Bible. And he was also elected co-chair of Working Group 2 for the seventh assessment cycle, which started in July 2023. A fantastic achievement in an already impressive career today. So in other words, we're in very good hands if we want to know more about the state of the climate today. Bart, welcome. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, Bart, I'm going to immediately ask a very big question. It's a short question, but it's probably a very big question. As we enter 2024, how bad is the current state of the climate? Yeah, bad is a subjective element that scientists normally try to avoid. Eh? They try to describe. But of course, there is reasons for concern, which is the terminology that also the six assessment reports uh, used abundantly. There is really reasons for concern that things are changing uh, evidently. Um, we, we really witnessed that these changes are no longer just projected from computer models, but the climate itself is talking to us. It's, it's showing a lot of phenomena that were kind of, you know, foreseen in, in, in a warming world. But yeah, the, the, the co-occurrence of many of these phenomena in that past summer that you just uh, circulated, that co-occurrence is, is really a surprising element as well. That all these things happen at the same time, you know, and, 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 and come, come up and they, 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 they impose themselves onto society such dramatically fast and fierce. That is, I think, yeah, the reason for concern. And is that surprising for you as a climate scientist that it's happening so fast? Yeah, the, 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 there is a, an element of surprise in that, yeah, it, of course, the, the, the fact that all these things happen together, it's not just climate change. It's, it's, it's climate. The climate is, you know, it's the co-occurrence of everything that, that, is, that is fitting in, in, into, the, into the weather patterns, etc. And all these weather patterns, they, 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 they show simultaneous uh, anomalies. And that in itself is, is kind of surprising. That's also, I think, a call to the scientific community that we are really focusing a lot traditionally on looking at how these individual weather phenomena like extreme rainfall or drought or, or ocean sea level things, they are, we are looking at them kind of in isolation, try to understand them from a process uh, point of view. And then the, but the real impact are are really governed by by the joint occurrence and also joined with what what society is doing at 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 at, at, at present you know there is lots of uh, societal groups that are affected simultaneously and i think our our uh, scientific analysis um yeah i think we need to take that you know that erratic nature of how climate change is actually imposing on science a bit more as a as a starting point rather than the 
average or generic responses to a warming climate because that erratic behavior is where the surprise is and where society has to cope with. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I already hear a lot of uh, really interesting things that I definitely want to touch on later on in, in, in our uh, discussion, of course, especially when it comes to well, the relationship uh, between scientists, uh, climate scientists and society and uh, how scientists think and, and should behave in the context of, of this ever uh, growing uh, climate crisis, of course. But maybe... Um, Let's let's uh, continue a bit on the state of the climate currently, of course. Um, so 2023, I already mentioned it in the introduction, of course, there were a number of uh, extreme weather events related to climate change, of course, in part, as you said, also related to other weather events, such as El Nino, of course. But is there one event, even though you just said that we shouldn't look at them in isolation, is there one event that really struck you as in, wow, this is a forceful thing happening in the context of the climate crisis. Yeah, the, the, the most striking phenomenon is, I think, the absurdly high uh, temperatures in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. That, was, that is extraordinary. And, and a former colleague at KNMI, he, he compared that, that new record as if suddenly at Olympic Games, the 100 meters is run within seven seconds. Okay, wow. That kind of, you know, shock adjustment to the to the uh, to the history has been uh, taking place and associated to that the enormous retreats in in sea ice cover etc et but that that ocean dynamics it's it's so complex because it's you know a lot of the things that that govern these temperatures they are out of sight they happen deep in the oceans or they are it's a matter of advection of massive amounts of energy via currents that that come together in a very unexpected way so it's very difficult to to get a handle on, on those kind of exotic phenomena. But and, those are really surprising. And, and do you mean that there's also a lack still of scientific knowledge yeah. on, on these phenomena and, and these interplays of different... Yeah, for sure. People say, uh, ironically, we know more about the moon's surface than our, of our deep oceans. And that holds for the biosphere, but also for the physics and for the, for the energy distribution, etc. A large uncertainty that we see in the, in the future warming scenarios is due to the uncertainties about how much of the energy is actually contained in the ocean. And what is the time before everything gets mixed? What is the time scale at which it's released back to the ocean? That is where the big uncertainties are still here. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, very long time scales. So they, they are, they will stay with us for decades, this kind of anomalies. That is, that is the concern. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> so, so how do you deal with these uncertainties also in your own research as a climate scientist? That something. How do you take that into account? These uncertainties, because I think that's something uh, essential in, yeah. in dealing with this, and also in communicating this to a wider public that there is some hmm. uncertainty in the models, in in the thinking, in the science around climate change. Yeah, but I, I like to compare the. Uh, I, I often take weather forecasting as an analogy. Okay. And uh, and we are really well. You know, we are all accepting uncertainty in weather forecasts in two weeks from now. And are expecting very good performance a day from now. But for, for heavy showers at the local spot, even that is already more than we expect. And so uncertainty in that sense is something that is very, you know, calibrated into our behavior already. So I don't, I wouldn't stress that uncertainty too much as an, as a bottleneck or so, because it's something we have to, co we are coping with every day. And, you know, in, in the Netherlands, for instance, we look a lot at, uh, uh, at, at uh, safety, uh, flood safety, etc., from a, from a risk-based uh, approach. And, you know, risk and uncertainty, they go together. And, and so I think uncertainty is not, not something that we need to avoid. I think we need to make it manageable. And a way to make uncertainty at a long-term manageable is to present multiple scenarios, for instance. We don't, don't embark on the most likely one, but sometimes we even take very exotic ones for which we know that their probability is pretty low, but their relevance is very high because they are, you know, like these extreme sea level rise scenarios. They are very relevant for our society. So we better have a picture of that for the very low chance that they will materialize. Yeah. But that, I think, is uh, policymakers don't like uncertainty. I don't think that's correct. It's their profession to take decisions under uncertainty. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, their daily routine. And I think we need to embrace uncertainty rather than to try to diminish it because that's an, 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 a lost game anyway. It's an uphill battle to reduce uncertainty. Everything that we know more leads to larger numbers of degrees of freedom of the system that we have in our computer models and increase the spread of potential futures. So in that sense, uncertainty only tends to increase rather than reduce. But we need to, of course, make it manageable. Yeah, of course, and, and it's 
really good that you already <laughs> mentioned one word policymakers there because mm. I, I want to talk about the relationship between climate scientists and policymakers yeah, uh, yeah. uh, as well later on. Uh, but again, going back to science, if you will, behind everything that, that policymakers should be doing. Um, so we already talked a bit about the impacts and some of the anomalies that, that we've been seeing in, in recent years. Um, based on current trends and current events, um, how might current impacts that we're already seeing develop in the near to midterm future? There is, a, of course, a very large, you know, a myriad of impacts that we already see happening. And um, the, 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 you, you just made a list of the, the drought occurrences in the Amazon or the, the unprecedented wildfires in Canada or the, the flash floods in Mexico or whatever. I mean, those are, you know, the snapshots of, of a phenomena that we already see. And, um, yeah, also close by, uh, we, we, uh, we just, uh, left behind a, a winter season with anomalous, uh, discharge from, from the Rhine rivers and, and, and lots of local rainfall that, that in itself is, is, you know, a weather phenomenon, but fits in a, in, in a picture of a warmer climate that uh, brings more moisture at the same time at the same, and, and, and a small amount of time. This is, this is, I think, uh, we don't need the computer models to look at what the climate change impacts are there. So we need to, uh, to, 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 to utilize these and, uh, uh, yeah, get, get, get your lessons out of the recent events. And for sure, for, for, yeah, in our con in, in environment, uh, we are protected very well in the Netherlands, for instance. Yeah, we have flood defenses of, of thousands of years return time uh, levels. And even at a local scale, 20, 50, 100 years return times are, are the design. But then when an event of that kind of, you know, return time comes by, yeah, my philosophy is it's so rare, it's a waste not to use it. So please uh, dive into it, perturb it, put it at another location, try to peel out all the information that is in that observed event to learn as a society what, what actually the implications are and what are the options, what are the policy options against it. And I see more and more activities in that direction. And I really like that, that, that uh, a couple of years ago with that, that summer flooding in Central Europe that also yeah. hit the Netherlands. Uh, we, at Deltaars, we, we put that same event uh, at another location in the Netherlands with a totally different, you know, hydrological uh, management yeah. regime. And so totally different impacts, totally different damage profiles, totally different danger profiles than in Limburg. And I think it's an excellent example of how we can learn much more from, from the observed and, and, and physical events. Um, and yeah, that is the, so, and yeah, I think it's the, the message also is we better get used to it uh, because it's going to stay for us for a while. I think another important lesson here is also that it's not because we live in the quote unquote developed countries. Uh, I'm from Belgium, for example, of course, you've probably heard that already from my accent. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, I mean, uh, dozens of people actually died during yeah, the flash floods exactly. in the summer of 2021. So what I'm trying to say is that this isn't happening in far away developing no. countries that are far less adapted, technologically speaking and financially speaking, to um, rising sea levels or extreme weather events, this yep. can happen here as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, but, but it's, it, and, and, and indeed, we, we, we need to take care about, um, um, how, how our current society already can get surprised by these unprecedented events. And that's very good that, that, that we also join forces at the Belgian, Dutch, uh, German, uh, science communities. They come together. There's a recently, uh, a, a quite a large uh, project has been initiated. To, uh, to explore, uh, the, the lessons learned from this, from this flooding case by the, the better forecasting, better policy making, better uh, protection, et cetera. So that's a very important thing. But on the other hand, we always have to call also for the global context, not just the regional international, but the global context. And yeah, that is, that is of course of a large concern. I mean, for us, sea level rise in exotic levels is, is, is an existential threat at the long term. Potentially, currently already water supply in many in, in places where many many people live, or even temperature excesses, where, where in places where many many people live, are already near to existential limits in the very near future. Do you uh, have uh, examples? If if it, I cannot imagine how it feels a temperature of more than fifty degrees as we recorded in Baghdad, or 
the, the enormous heat wave in, in, in India uh, a couple of years ago and, and also this year. I cannot imagine how it is to live in that in that in in, in, in such environment for maybe for a couple of days. Yeah, you can you can imagine, and then you go to your hotel, you switch on your air conditioning. But that is an, an element. I cannot imagine what 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 like in the Horn of Africa, five six six consecutive rain season actually without significant amounts of rain. And now in parts of Ethiopia last year, lots of flooding again. You know, mm. that that erratic nature of of weather. Yeah, that is that is you know putting all the already marginal uh, agriculture industry and and and, uh, and 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 drinking water supplies and all other resources that rely on, on fresh water, put it already at at very very difficult positions. And I think coping capacity in 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 rough regions always is a bit higher than in calm regions. Of course, there is more experience to deal with extreme. But if it becomes existential, if if the water isn't there. Or is the, if the cooling isn't there, yeah, that's getting then. Then I uh, I I don't have enough imagination uh, to feel what what it is like. And this, I'm I'm really keen for the upcoming uh, IPCC Working Group to report on on or reports on this on these topics. Um, I'm also really here in 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 it to to learn. Uh, from from the fellow experts in this region to see what what actually is going on in these areas and what is the coping capacity and what is the solution options. It's so important to have an eye on the international uh, uh, yeah. element. Super interesting, um, and that's also a very nice bridge to well our discussion on the IPCC that mm. I really want to talk to you about. Yeah, of course, because you mentioned it. Um, as you said, and as I've introduced you, of course, you've been a lead author for the sixth assessment report of the ICCC, IPCC better, and will now be co-chair of one of the working groups for the seventh um, uh, assessment report round, if you will. Before we delve into uh, content, um, can you perhaps explain to those less familiar with assessment reports what assessment reports are of the IPCC? Yeah, an assessment is uh, a bit different than a review. For sure, it's not a research program. Okay. It's, it's in fact an evaluation of research that has been documented in in literature, in, uh, mostly peer review literature. And yeah, an assessment is actually to to yeah to make sense out of a very wide collection of of, of articles and studies, and to put them into a, a more coherent uh, yeah narrative, if you like, if in, in a coherent story. And uh, so it's not a review because it, 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 you cannot pretend to cover all literature there, but you take you take a relevant subset of it. And it's not just to judge what whether the the the, lit, the, the studies done right or wrong or whatever. No, it's it's to make an, an a coherent uh, uh, story out of it. And yeah, that is uh, IPCC has been uh, charged to do so since uh, the late eighties. That was the first uh, IPCC assessment cycle started eighty nine or so. Or the first report came out in uh, 1990, and uh, ever since, every like five six years, a new cycle has been uh, initiated, and we are now indeed at the at the uh, doorstep of the seventh cycle. And in in every cycle, um, um, yeah, a, a, a set of uh, say uh, daily board members, uh, co-chairs of working groups, they are tasked to uh, to set up a couple of reports for that will come out uh, during that cycle. And for such a reports, um, yeah, you first call together a lot of experts to say, okay, what is the topic about and what should be in the report. Then um, you are going to set out a call for who what's who would like to uh, contribute to authoring such a report. And you 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 make these author groups. And with these authors, you produce a couple of versions of such a report. And of course, these author teams, they are very multidisciplinary and they are also representative for every region in the world. And so there's really, uh, it's, it's really a global uh, exercise. Yeah. And in the end, after a couple of review uh, procedures, you come up with a, with a, with a final report. And for that, you also make what we call a summary for policymakers. Um, and that summary is then, um, yeah, approved or submitted to an approval procedure by yeah, the IPCC uh, community. Yeah. So basically countries, right? And governments. Yes. The IPCC consists of 195 member states. Yeah. So yeah. from the Netherlands, the Ministry of Economic Affairs is actually executing a focal point IPCC. Yeah. And they represent the Netherlands mm -hmm. at that uh, uh, General Assembly. 
And, uh, and they, in fact, also initiate this daily board of co-chairs. They approve the outline, they approve the author list, and they approve the, the final summary. And so it's really um, yeah, a procedure that ensures buy-in from the entire world. Mm -hmm. At the end, the summary for policymakers has been word by word approved by all people in the room, which is, of course, an, an important contribution to the yeah the convincing authority of, of such a report um very very interesting and uh, uh, by training i'm a political scientist so basically that also shows that even in the scientific approach of the assessment reports and the climate scientists there is a very political element to the creation and the writing and the eventual green lighting of these reports. Yep. I want to come back to that in a second, yep. but um, just um, uh, a bit more on the IPCC and how it works. Um, the different reports, perhaps a, a bit detailed, but maybe interesting for the, the listeners as well. There's different working groups, right? And yep. you're the co-chair of a specific working group. So what yep. are these working groups? So there is three main working groups, which um, working group one is the one that is actually the physical climate analysis. Mm -hmm. I was member of uh, the working group one uh, assessment report in, uh, in, the, in the sixth cycle. Working group two, which I'm co-chair of now, is uh, dealing with impacts of climate change, but also adaptation. So the means to, to, uh, to make society resilient against extremes. And working group three, so traditionally it gets the most attention because that is about emission reduction and, and the, the greenhouse cycle and the economy that goes with it and the energy transitions that go with it. And in addition, there's also what we call a task force for inventories. That's also a sort of a fourth working group, but it's more like an executive bureau. They actually design the, the scientific methodological procedures with which countries do report their emissions. And that's not trivial. It's not just a matter of collecting numbers from your central bureau of statistics because you have to deal with what happens to land use change, how much natural and enforced sequestration of carbon takes place, what is the transport of all that carbon via via products and whatever. So it's it's quite a complex task as well. And that's a specific task force. Uh, for inventories uh, uh, apart from the from the three working groups yeah quite a big and, and complex yep. undertaking uh, these uh, it is, assessment yeah. cycles yeah, yeah, it yeah. Is. the assessment cycle starts with um, a meeting where the panel so the general assembly decides on which reports will be produced okay. and traditionally we've always seen that there will be for each working group there will be one big assessment report um, but like last uh, episode uh, very often also a couple of special reports are commissioned. And in the last episode, we had three special reports, one on the, the cryosphere oceans, one on the 1.5 degree, and one on land uh, parts. Um, and we are actually at the doorstep next week. We will go to Istanbul. We are early January now. Uh, we will go to Istanbul where the panel will come together. And we have made a proposal for how the seventh cycle will look like, or actually we have made different proposals and leave it up to the panel to, to pick one of them or two. So, so end of next week, I know which reports will be produced and when. Okay. But one report has already been commissioned in a previous cycle, which is a special report on climate change and cities. And that is already in the pipeline. So we already have planned this scoping meeting to take place there somewhere in April. And that will, uh, according to plan, be released end of 26, early 27. All right. Um, yeah, really interesting. And, and I want to come back to what we were talking about earlier. And thanks for this very elaborate and, and, and clear explanation of what the IPCC actually does, because it's sometimes a bit of a black box, if mm -hmm. you will, um, even for people that follow it uh, a bit more closely, uh, such as myself. Um, but about that political nature of, of, of these reports, or at least to a certain extent, and you painted a relatively positive picture of it, saying, well, it shows that, I mean, there is global consensus mm -hmm. at 195 countries that say, yes, we agree with this or that sentence. But, and perhaps this is a bit of a sensitive question for someone like you, um, do you also sense that some countries are a bit more hesitant to agree with certain language that you as climate scientists put in there to basically describe the severity of the crisis, if you will, that we're in now. That's definitely uh, the case. And that is, of course, 
the side effect of uh, coming, coming to a global consensus is that the final versions has to be agreed by all members. And that means a lot of the sharp edges gets, get polished away. Uh, during that, for sure, for the for the uh, the summary for policymakers, eh, where that line by line approval procedure is applied, you can imagine that if uh, the, the two exotic uh, uh, formulations will be will will be challenged, there is always uh, say a scientific uh, conscience on the table. Eh? So that it's it's really the, the the scientists that compile the report are in the same room and will always hesitate or will always uh, resist making changes that are not backed up by, by the underlying evidence. Yeah? But uh, indeed, in, in highlighting or even selection of, of specific subjects, yeah, sometimes choices uh, are made not to include it because there's too much, too little confidence. Or um, there is, of course, also a sort of an, yeah, a pretty, pretty important and sometimes very strict line between giving policy-relevant information or actually doing a policy-prescriptive statement. The last is not within the mandate. The first definitely is. And you can sometimes see that that, that, that line, although important, can be interpreted in various ways. Now you could say, in the last report, we present five scenarios. Yeah, and, 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 and in, 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 on the positive side, this is not policy-prescriptive because we give five different Options, right? If you take it from a more strict point of view, you are comparing a very bad scenario to a very positive scenario, and you leave actually no choice but to reject the bad scenario. And that feels like being policy prescriptive already, of course, you know? So that is, I, I really find it interesting also from, from as, a, as a scientist, I, I feel myself uh, my my profession and my you know uh, membership of a, a civilization as a newspaper reader, they get mixed up all the time. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm one person yeah. that with a scientific say evidence based mindset looks at a debate that has a lot of political values in there and which are not wrong or right. Yeah, they come they don't come out of a computer. Yeah. And I really understand um, how important it is that that there is. A scientific evidence base that can can that 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 needs to to secure that they also can keep on feeding that societal debate in the future and not being accused of too being too alarmistic or too optimistic or whatever. Eh? Some kind of pseudo neutrality is is there. But I also continuously am aware and 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 communicate with my fellow uh, co-chairs and, and scientists. What we do enters a societal debate where it's not about objectivity. That is subjective and needs to be subjective. Absolutely. This is about values. This is about opinions and uh, ideologies. And we need to be aware that that is, that is where, the, where, the, where the, the real choices are going to be made. And yeah, for me, uh, yeah, my, my mission is that at least yeah, the evidence should be the retain the pillar. But I'm also... At a, at a at a point, and I think my the, the the IPCC reports demonstrate that point, there is a given unavoidability in in where we are. This is you know, it's not reversible. What what's what's there? It's not not there. Yeah, it has to be dealt with. That is that is a statement, and that is of course. Yeah, I don't want to push people uh, to to uh, to give advice. I don't want to put people in despair or uh, uh, paralyze them because there's no options anywhere anymore. I, I really see many, many options and, and, and opportunities. So I'm definitely not a pessimist on this. But it is unavoidable that this is a topic that will hit us as a society or hit us, at least affect us, uh, as we have never seen before. So And that unavoidability, I don't think, is policy prescriptive. It's just evidence-based. Yeah, but... A lot of uh, really important uh, points that you're touching on, especially also because in a later episode, we'll be talking to colleagues um, on science and activism as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. A member of a scientist rebellion, for example. Very good. But also someone working at a university and thinking about how can a university's engagement with uh, the climate transition or the energy transition 
um, take shape, of course. How activist can we be as university? Um, yes. How activist can we be as researchers as well? And I, I find your um, very nuanced position in this debate very, very interesting and very important. I was wondering, just um, can you be at the same time member of Scientist Rebellion and then a specialist and expert in one of the working groups? Are I... these reconcilable? Positions, yes, uh, I, I don't see why not. I mean, I, I, as, I, as I said, I'm one unified being and I've got my opinions and my concerns and my, my motives or whatever. No, I think it's definitely, I can, I, I think it's very credible. I think it's, it's even stronger that if you are just, if you position yourself as an objective, neutral scientist, I don't think I'm going to be believed. If I'm not, you know, committed to the cause, I, I think it's part of your. Of the, of the confidence that the scientist gets if he or she is engaged with the topic and not just puts it in as facts, but knows that these facts mean something. That is part of confidence, I think. However, I think there is um, a, a discussion about tactics of what is it that you want to achieve and what is then the best means. For me, I will never, you know, flew uh, myself to uh, to uh, because... <laughs> That's that's not my. Uh, I'm not going to be effective because you know I'm going to be a co-chair of a large community of scientists from all cultures and political systems in the world, and I also am there for them, and I don't want to be associated with some action where you know an an an, uh, an, an uh, Asian or African country representation says, oh, that co-chair is uh, way too activist. Uh, I don't want to get him in in my uh, in my influence. So. That's not my my tactics, but but yeah, I can of course understand very well, and I also appreciate the the societal function of activism as a means to to make things change. That is that is that is evident. Um, so yeah, I will I will always be willing to 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 have the debate about uh, tactics. But will never uh, challenge people for uh, whether they can afford to be activist. Yeah, yeah. well, great answer. Uh, really important. Uh, so, as I understand it, then your your function basically as a, as a co-chair is also that of a diplomat because you're yeah leading yeah. a global yeah. team. <clears throat> well, yeah, it, it's yeah. There's definitely a lot of diplomatics uh, in there. It's it's definitely a lot of process management. And in that process, is we we people come together and they have to work together. And they have to agree on on topics together. Um, it's uh, the IPCC by nature is a very consensus driven uh, institute, and uh, and also in the in the in the author teams and in the products uh, at the end, uh, consensus is the way forward. And uh, and of course, sometimes scientific debates have to be uh, disputes have to be settled at some stage. But then, with the 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 the, the, the proper uh, academic principles, that uh, if there is not a, if uh, if there is not an agreement, then you say so. You 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 make a note of that, and you 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 you, you link your confidence statement to the level of agreement. Uh, and yeah, IPCC has de developed very yeah over the course of the the the, the decades already uh, what they call a calibrated language. On uncertainty, confidence, likelihoods, etc., and they all have specific meanings. And I like that that notion. That it's, it's a very academic practice, but it helps the processes to bring on board all these different views. I have, I'm so committed to to increase the engagement of people that are not that very well visible in our academic top ranked uh, science papers, but are you know the the uh, making such a tremendous impact in their local national environments by 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 giving scientific guidance to their uh, policymakers representatives, and I really want to get them on board as well. Uh, that's a really great point. Um, how how difficult is that? Knowing that, or this is an assumption of mine, that a lot of the knowledge climate science is being conducted or concentrated in the global north, if you will, whereas the biggest impacts, as you've said earlier, are already occurring in the global south developing countries, but there is less knowledge or less visible knowledge, if you will. How do you, as the diplomat and the co-chair, how do you bring that together? Is that a, a challenge? It definitely is, but it's, 
it already starts with um, the construction of an, a support unit that we're still doing. So I, uh, the Ministry of Economic Affairs and some other ministries have granted me uh, seven people that can that will help me. And I'm currently in the recruitment stage and uh, already recruited a couple of them. One of them being uh, my uh, my senior science advisor in the support unit. Um, he will hopefully start uh, in April this year or somewhere. He's from Africa. And uh, yeah, in, in, in one of the interviews we had with him, he says, well, that's not, not you know, there's not a lack of data in Africa. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's there everywhere. It's, it's just not as uh, well penetrated into the scientific literature, you know, but there's so much evidence in Africa about climate change impacts, about uh, solutions, about policies, about, you know, equity uh, topics, about everything. But it's, it's, we need a different ban- bunch of, you know, uh, procedures, but also different people to get to it. We need to go into gray literature much more. We need to go into networks of, of, you know, professional networks, not only our Western uh, cities networks or, or climate adaptation expert networks. Now, also in Africa, there's also allies of, of, you know, regional experts that come together and have excellent local knowledge and, and experiences that we also want to harvest. So it's, I'm really committed to, yeah, to bring in a lot of that evidence in our assessment. And then, we shouldn't talk about, you know, the 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 the, the developing world has less uh, capabilities or they are more capable because they're more experienced, have less data. The data is there. It just has to be, you know, aggregated to the right level. Less options. The options are there. And I, I I don't think that that picture is right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really want to want to, you know, enrich myself and the future readers of our reports. Uh, with a much more globally, yeah, yeah, appreciable uh, picture of what's actually at stake. Yeah, is that only going to further improve these reports? Uh, it has to, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of depth yeah. and yeah. and 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 breadth, yeah. of course, as well. Um, we already talked a little bit about your position as a as a, uh, a scientist vis-a-vis society and policymakers, and and with your scientific lens. Um, how do you look at the COP processes and, and especially the, the outcomes of the latest COP28 uh, um, in Dubai, um, of course? I was wondering, from a, you know, the IPCC is basically the UN's scientific body, whereas the UNFCCC is more the political body mm-hmm. that deals with climate change at the global level. How do these two come together? And how do you look at the COP processes and the outcomes of mm-hmm. the latest COP? Yeah, that's a, a great uh, topic. I'm I'm really a newbie on that on okay. that COP thing. I've I've never attended a COP. I was I I, I attended this one, but remotely. I wasn't there. Okay. I, we had co- two co-chairs in work group two, and one and my fellow co-chair was there, and I stayed here. And I've I've talked to a couple of experts on uh, negotiation uh, stuff. Um, uh, Peter Power is a Dutch expert. Yeah, uh, yeah, he, uh, he worked on it, and and uh, Philip, of course, and and others and. It's 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 amazing what 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 I can learn on that. I have uh, yeah you know there's different there's lots of linkages uh, of course. We are very keen uh, at the current stage of our planning process. The COP has questions to IPCC. Can you please update us on this and this and this? We have just had a global stock take. The first global stock take. The next one will be in 2028. That is very 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 likely going to be within our seventh assessment cycle and so we will probably be or we already have had questions can you provide us with an update on this and this and this for the next stock date so that is affecting our agenda so that's a clear link on the other hand i i also see that um it's much more than just the climate subjects everything comes together there and uh also in our realm where we're adaptation and impacts, loss and damage, uh, historic legacy, uh, 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 accountability for those impacts, financial compensation. That is, of course, by the letter and by the word, it's climate, but, but you no, know, by the spirit of the negotiations, it's also about restoring imbalances and, and economic powers and, uh, and yeah, that is uh, highly interesting, but <laughs> so uh, difficult to to get through. So, I'm I'm positive about the outcome that at least there is you know a mentioning of the inevit- inevitable 
point that, yeah. that, that we need to uh, phase out uh, fossil at the stage. But I also see the um, cooked, baked in global ambivalence against doing so. Uh, there is, there is, of course, a desire to do so, but a huge hesitation to really go for it with everything you have in you. And yeah, that is also what brings me to the conclusion: adaptation is a big thing. Yeah, it's going to be a big thing because it's going to cost us a couple of decades before climate can be considered to be on a returning path. Decades, yeah. if not centuries. Yeah. So adaptation is uh, is is for me is uh, is is the thing to uh, to really take a lot of, uh, a lot of concern. Do you think that policymakers haven't paid enough attention to that and focused too much on the first pillar, basically uh, mitigation, so avoiding increases in temperature levels, especially because we yeah. already see or we can already know that certain levels of warming are locked in. Yeah. No, for sure, and 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 yeah, for quite a while, adaptation was always seen as uh, the risk of, of getting an alibi for not uh, yeah. mitigating. But I don't, uh, I, I don't, I don't buy that argument. I think there is uh, there is a lot of reason to come together as a as a global community when you talk about mitigation, because a single country's effort is is of course useless. That that only works by the virtue of. Uh, coming together for adaptation you could say well but uh, that is something that you can really design and implement at a national scale but then indeed it is also about cost and about liability and about um, economic profits uh, or economic risks uh, that go and then you are actually back to the trade negotiations or diplomatic negotiations to think about how much can we afford to to spend on adaptation? And what's what's the benefit for, say, remote countries if if this country is is uh, is adapt adapting? And I think it's a hugely interesting uh, territory and increasing interest also to come together as a as a global community. Not only because of that liability thing and and the fact that in the treaty there was quite a bit of countries that were hesitant to embrace the final conclusions. Before, because they first actually wanted to have financial compensation for the, or the losses and damages that already occurred before they commit to uh, to uh, emission reduction or fossil uh, phasing out. So th it's already linked there. But also our climate impacts in our part of the world are not isolated to our own weather and our own storms that, uh, that enter the Rhine Basin. Our production uh, you know, networks rely on climate variability in any location on the planet, and so uh, also it's in our own interest that we that we uh, bring in place uh, proper adaptation measures to secure food production, uh, to secure access, uh, to secure energy provision. It's 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 also a global interest to to work on it like that. So and then, yeah, the the least you can do is knowledge sharing, and that is, of course, what IPC is doing. But you can do a lot more. You can also share practical experiences. You can do team uh, building. You can uh, think about uh, uh, financial uh, uh, transfer. Yeah, no, at least modalities that that make uh, adaptation affordable and mm -hmm. and uh, uh, get a good, give it a good business case. You know, mm -hmm. the, the 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 drama is that at a global scale, the the business case of adaptation. Uh, is is not very good. Mitigation is much better. It's it's so much cheaper to phase out at the global scale on the long run. But of course, at for everybody's country, it's not that case. Then adaptation is has the business case because you are immediately protected as at the moment that you put that dike there. And uh, but 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 if you approach it from a global perspective, as we do, there is a lot of reasons to come together at a global scale. All right. Um, so we've got those two pillars, of course. We've got mitigation, adaptation, and then there's a third big one, loss and damage, that, as you uh, already yeah. briefly mentioned, had a big mention, of course, uh, in, in, the, in the outcome document uh, or yeah. the, the outcome agreement at, at COP28 with that uh, loss and damage fund finally being established. Um, how do you look at that? As a, as a scientist as well, how important is this third pillar, if you will, of the global climates or the way in which at a global level we look at climate change and try to address it? Yeah, I, from a scientific point of view, it's it's, it's very interesting. It, it also links to 
um, work that that I was associated with uh, quite a bit in 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 my uh, say at KNMI and in working group one, where where actually the question is how much of that damage is actually attributable to climate change. And, and so uh, colleagues at, at VU, at Dimka Mao and at KNMI, they do a lot of work on, on attribution work. Impact attribution is now uh, a thing. Also testing the effectivity of measures, of course, is part of that whole. And so that is interesting. And it's not a trivial thing. If the... It's if if you if you build a new uh, or, or you are trying to collect money to 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 build a new piece of infrastructure, yeah, part of that infrastructure is of course to to uh, design to cope with current climate variability, but there is a surcharge that you could account uh, uh, to take uh, into account the the climate of the future, which is maybe only ten or twenty percent. But then if you say, well, but I, uh, as uh, in the loss and damage discussion, I will only pay for the 20% for, because the rest is your own responsibility you had to deal with anyway. You know, mm-hmm. That is an interesting, methodologically, an interesting uh, topic. I think in practice, in the negotiation and in the, you do, in the diplomatic world, it's not that clean, that separation. Mm-hmm. It, it, there, there will be bargains. There will be conditional uh, approvals, co- uh, conditional commitments if you support this program, we will support you on that. You know, and and then that that scientific discrimination for this uh, distinction between what is climate related and what is, say, current climate is not that that uh, clear anymore. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, and the, the second batch that I'm really inter- uh, interested about is about the financial arrangements. How this this uh, is going to be because lots of the loss and damage funding that already took place is actually by means of loans. Lots of the subsidies that are uh, presented are actually getting back to the donor countries via contracts with with you know local entities yeah. that are uh, whether that is helping yeah, uh, yeah, to yeah. restore the 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 you know the economic uh, or wealth balance. Not sure, uh, but there's a lot of interesting you know uh, uh, science science to be done in that area as well. Yes. And as I said, I'm really curious to see all that science come in. Uh, in the reports that we're going to compile and uh, and learn from it because I'm not an expert on on finance or yeah. on uh, well, equity on and justice because yeah. for me as I understand yeah. you now this yeah. is really a, yeah, yeah. an issue of yeah. okay not yeah. just uh, in terms of attribution yeah. in a scientific yeah. sense how can you attribute an extreme weather event yeah. to climate change but also how can you then attribute that to this or that country in the developed that's world another one has yeah. to pay for it yes, and has one. to pay x amount of dollars for yeah. this yeah. For these losses. Yeah, and then if you do that on a micro scale, um, if, if if a rich uh, or developed country is going to pay for it, it's actually taxpayers' money. And in those taxpayers, there's a lot of people that pay tax that are having a difficult uh, position to, 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 to get their income at, uh, at a substantial level already right now. Mm-hmm. And so how fair is it that the majority of low-income people in these rich countries are going to pay for the developing countries, of course, that debate has uh, is 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 there as well. And uh, no, there is a, uh, and I think there's also a, a lot of room, not only for, say, the 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 economy or financial kind of say uh, gamma sciences, but also philosophy or or uh, yeah, law. Uh, the, that is that is a very interesting field. What what actually is your Say constitutional base to 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 and or your 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 your, your fundament of solidarity. What that every sense of solidarity has to come with the definition of its its boundaries. No one can be solidary infinitely with everybody for yeah. all generations. So, and then we talk talk about a very ethical and and yeah uh, yeah social ethical uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of debate. And I like. The publications that that put aside different, you know, configurations of the outcome of a treaty, dependent on whether you take this as your equity uh, definition or this or this, you can get very different diff- different outcomes. Whether you, for instance, even for the emission uh, uh, distribution, the emission carbon reduction, budget. carbon budget, yes. if you allocate it per capita, India and China are the ones that have to do most. If you allocate it by, say, pu- future prospects, again, the the big uh, uh, population countries have to pay uh, do, do most. If you do it by historic uh, reasons, then of course the rich countries have to pay for most. And it doesn't come out of a computer which of the ones is more just. Yeah? They have different uh, reasons to be to be called fair or just. 
but with a very different, uh, you know, philosoph philosophy. Yeah. I mean, this is stuff yeah. that I could uh, go on uh, yeah, about for hours that I can imagine well, then you as Make well. sure you, you, you become an author and <laughs> yeah. contribute to the report because this is uh, going to be yeah. a very interesting no, piece of absolutely. work. absolutely. Yeah. And I think it also comes back to what you said uh, in the very beginning that we shouldn't look at climate change as isolated events no. or isolated issues, but that we should look at them at the uh, more comprehensive level as a complex system of um, several issues um, colliding with, yep. with one another, uh, pol politics and science, um, philosophy and economics, etc. So it's different research fields yep. um, that yep. have to look at this jointly. So yep. interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity Definitely. is crucial. Yep. And I, I, I imagine that in the IPCC reports, uh, that's something yep. that you're trying to establish as yep. well. Yeah, and yet uh, the, the biggest challenge I think that uh, is facing us is that also we have to make choices. Not only society has to make a choice, but IPCC and our author teams also have to make a choice. Because I want thinner reports. Uh, because there are it's way thousands. thousands of pages. It was way too much work for the people that 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 were committed to it. Uh, we really are uh, hoping that next week in uh, in the plenary that we are not commissioned again with three special reports. It's way too much work. But also, the narrative has to be much more concise and straightforward. Um, and and we have to leave out so many things that are relevant. Uh, that is that is going to be a tough one, I'm sure. Right. Final question. Um, you already said it, actually. Um, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Yeah. Uh, the you know what uh, what a pessimist says about an optimist? It's it's just a badly informed realist. What <laughs> 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 they say that okay. about each other? <laughs> no, I'm I I. I yeah, I've got an, a strong sense of uh, inevitability, but I'm also an optimist in um, proven ability of of coping with all these things. Um, but it will be it. We will get a lot of shocks. It's going to be a bumpy road. That that I'm really sure of. But I'm optimistic that our contribution from IPCC is going to make that road a less a bit less bumpy. But uh, so it's going to be bumpy anyway. But I think I hope it's going to be a bit less bumpy. But yeah, that that is that is that is that is what we have to face. But it's not. I I I, I will, will never. I would never give up. And that is also not a realistic picture. The society will never give up. They will always find you know, solutions that, that 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 will come to to play. Otherwise, there is no no. That's also a, a reason to be optimistic. There is no alternative. Okay, that's a good way of thinking about there yeah. is no alternative. Thank you very much, Professor Bart van der Hoek, for yep. being with us. And best of luck also in the, well, the next round Thank uh, you. of the IPCC report. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Before I leave you, I want to thank my guests for joining us. I also want to thank Nela of the Climate Expertise Center for helping us realize this show, um, the VU Campus Radio for hosting us, and Floris and his team over at Podcastil for producing it. But most of all, I want to thank you for joining us and listening. Definitely check out our other Climate Breakdown episodes as well. And if you want to learn more about our work, visit the website of our Climate Expertise Center or get in touch directly. Thanks and catch you later.